Welcome to another Adult Bible Study Guide, Exploring the Book of Job, written by Clifford Goldstein, edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group, narrated by Byron Phillips and Lynette Newhart. Exploration 4. God and Human Suffering. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34, the New King James Version. Unlike every other book of the Bible, the book of Job is completely removed from the context of the land and people of Israel. From Genesis, with the promise to Abram that the Lord will make of thee a great nation, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2, to Revelation, which describes the holy city, Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 19. In some way, directly or indirectly, the context of Israel and its covenant relationship with God helps shape each book. In Job, there is nothing of that, not even the important event in ancient Israelite history, the Exodus. The most immediate reason is that Moses wrote Job in Midian, along with Genesis. The Exodus had not happened yet, which explains why it's not mentioned. But perhaps there's another reason, even more important. One of the key themes of Job, human suffering, is universal. It's not limited to any one people or time, Jew or Gentile. We all know something of Job's woes of the pain of existence in a fallen world. However unique his pain, Job represents us all in our suffering. Let's listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. What is Paul saying in these verses? For God does not overlook sin, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their wickedness suppress and stifle the truth. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, in their inner consciousness, for God made it evident to them. For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through his workmanship, all his creation, the wonderful things that he has made, so that they who fail to believe and trust in him are without excuse and without defense. What a powerful few sentences. Enough of the reality and existence of God is revealed through the phrase, what has been made in the New American Standard Bible. That is, through the created world, that people will be without excuse for their unbelief. Paul is saying that from the creation alone, 
humans can learn enough about the existence and nature of God that they can justly be condemned on the day of judgment. No question, the natural world does reveal so much to us about the existence of God. Modern science, too, has revealed to us details about the marvels of creation that our ancestors, even just 300 years ago, much less 3,000 years ago, could not even have begun to imagine. There's an interesting irony here as well. The more complexity science finds in life, the less likely becomes the means science claims for its origin, that of accident and chance. An iPhone, for instance, which looks designed, acts designed, reveals design both inside and out, and works only through design, is, of course, designed. But a human being, which looks designed, acts designed, reveals design both inside and out, and works only through design, is, we are assured, a product of pure chance alone. Sadly, many people are deceived into believing such claims. Listen to Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. How do the words in these verses reflect the idea presented in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20? Now ask the animals, and let them teach you that God does not deal with his creatures according to their character. And ask the birds of the air, and let them tell you. Or speak to the earth with its many forms of life, and it will teach you. And let the fish of the sea declare this truth to you. Who among all these does not recognize in all these things that good and evil are randomly scattered throughout nature and human life, that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? In these verses, too, we are told that the reality of God is seen in the created world. Though especially in its fallen state, nature doesn't reveal the full character of God. It certainly reveals his creative power and aspects of his goodness as well. What things in nature especially talk to you about the power and goodness of God? How can you learn to gain strength and encouragement from the message it gives you. Nothing came from itself. There are many good and powerful arguments in favor of God's existence. Besides the testimony of the created world, there are also what's called the cosmological argument. Basically, it's the idea that nothing came from itself and that nothing created itself. Instead, what was created was created by something else before it, and whatever created that had to be created by something else before it. And this goes on and on until we stop at something uncreated, 
something that had always existed, something that never was not in existence. And who else would that be but the God depicted in Scripture? What do the following three texts teach you about the origin of all things? Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive the glory and the honor and the power, for you created all things, and because of your will they exist, and were created and brought into being. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created and exist through him, that is, by his activity and for him, and he himself existed and is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the controlling, cohesive force of the universe. And John chapter 1 and verse 1 through 3. In the beginning, before all time, was the Word, Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God himself. He was continually existing in the beginning, co-eternally with God. All things were made and came into existence through him, and without him not even one thing was made that has come into being. These texts teach what is really the most logical explanation for the creation, an eternally existing God. Some thinkers, utterly opposed to the idea of God, have come up with an alternative suggestion. Instead of an all-powerful and eternal God creating the universe, we are told that nothing created it. Even such a famous scientist as Stephen Hawking, who now occupies the chair that Isaac Newton once held, argues that nothing created the universe. He wrote, quote, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. End quote. Quoted from page 180 of the book by Stephen Hawking and Leonard Laudinal, entitled The Grand Design, published by Random House in New York, 2010. Though Hawking surely has plenty of deep and complicated math to describe his idea, one has to wonder. Here we are, a good 400 years since the beginning of the scientific revolution, and one of the world's best scientists is arguing that the universe and all that's in it came from nothing? Error is error, even when spoken by a great scientist. In this context, let's listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 19. For the reason of this world is foolishness, absurdity, stupidity before God. For it is written, 
in Scripture. He is the one who catches the wise and clever in their craftiness. Why is it always important to keep this important truth before you? of books. Despite the hype of those who don't believe in God, those who do believe in God have many good reasons for their belief. However, there's been one perennial problem that many have used through the ages to justify their disbelief, and that is the problem of human suffering and evil. How can God be all good, all loving, and all powerful, and evil exist? This has been and remains a stumbling block to many. And also, if we are honest, what believer in God, what person who has tasted and experienced the reality of God and His love, hasn't struggled at times with that question? How interesting, then, that Ellen G. White also taught what Jewish tradition teaches, that Moses wrote Job in Midian. The long years among desert solitudes were not lost. Not only was Moses gaining a preparation for the great work before him, but during this time, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the book of Genesis and also the book of Job, which would be read with the deepest interest by the people of God until the close of time. Here is the reference. Ellen G. White comment, the SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 3, page 1140. What this tells us is that of the first two books of the Bible ever penned, one of them, Job, deals with the universal issue of human pain and suffering. That is, God knew that this would be a big question for humans, and thus, right from the start, in the Word, he had Moses pen the story of Job. God let us know, early on, that we are not left alone in our pain and suffering, but that He is there. He knows all about it, and we can have the hope that He will make it right in the end. What do the following four texts teach us about the reality of evil? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. John chapter 16 and verse 33. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have perfect peace. In the world you have tribulation and distress and suffering, but be courageous. Be confident, be undaunted, be filled with joy. I have overcome the world. My conquest is accomplished, my victory abiding. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. 
Now at that end time, Michael, the great angelic prince, who stands guard over the children of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book of life, will be rescued. And Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. However understandable the argument from evil against the existence of God, in light of the scriptures, it makes no sense. Though the Bible teaches the reality of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God, it also teaches the reality of evil, of human suffering and woe. Evil is not an excuse for disbelief in God. In fact, a cursory reading of the book of Job shows that even amid his utter despondency, Job never questioned the existence of God. The question instead, and a valid one, is why are these things happening to him? It's only natural to have questions about the evil you see. How can you learn to trust in the goodness of God despite that evil? Dilemma. Listen to the following texts in Job. What issue is Job wrestling with? What question does he not ask? Job chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Because the arrows of the Almighty are within me, my spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass? Or does the ox low over his fodder? Can something that has no taste to it be eaten without salt? Or is there any flavor in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. Such things are like loathsome food to me, sickening and repugnant. Oh, that my request would come to pass, and that God would grant me the thing that I long for. Job chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Then Job answered and said, Yes, I know it is true. But how can a mortal man be right before God? If one should want to contend or dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has ever defied or challenged him and remained unharmed. It is God who removes the mountains, and they do not know it when he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? 
Who commands the sun and it does not shine? Who seals up the stars from view? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who made the constellations, the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the vast starry spaces of the south? Who does great things beyond understanding, unfathomable, yes, marvelous, and wondrous things without number? Behold, he passes by me, and I do not see him. He moves past me, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can restrain or turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? As we discovered in the previous section, the issue of God's existence never came up in the book of Job. Instead, the question was, why was Job going through these trials? And considering all that happened to him, it certainly was a fair question, especially because he believed in God. If, for example, someone was an atheist and trials were to come, the answer about why could be relatively simple and straightforward to him or her. We live in a meaningless and purposeless world that cares nothing about us. Thus, amid the harsh and cold and uncaring natural forces around us, we sometimes are the victims of trials that serve no purpose. How could they? If life itself serves no purpose, then the trials that accompany that life must be just as meaningless. While many find this answer unsatisfying and hopeless, it certainly makes sense given the premise, which is that there is no God. On the other hand, for someone like Job, the dilemma is different. Listen to Job chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. How do these verses help you understand the terrible questions that Job is wrestling with? Your hands have formed and made me altogether. Would you turn around and destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay. So will you turn me into dust again? Have you not poured me out like milk? and curdled me like cheese. You have clothed me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and loving kindness, and your providence, divine care, supervision, has preserved my spirit. Yes, the question that Job is wrestling with is the same one that most believers in God have wrestled with and still do wrestle with. If God exists, a good and loving God, why do humans suffer the things that they do? Why do even good people, such as Job, go through calamities and trials that so often seem to produce nothing of value? Again, if the universe were godless, the answer would be that this is simply what it means to live in a purely materialistic cosmos in which human beings are merely the accidental byproducts of atoms and molecules. Job knew better than that. We do too. Hence, 
the dilemma. Theodicy. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Though the immediate context is the unfaithfulness of some of God's covenant people, what is the bigger issue that Paul is talking about? What is Paul saying about God? Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then what is the advantage of the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, his very words. What then? If some did not believe or were unfaithful to God, their lack of belief will not nullify and make invalid the faithfulness of God and his word, will it? Certainly not. Let God be found true, as he will be, though every person be found a liar, just as it is written in Scripture, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged by sinful men. Quoting Psalm chapter 51 and verse 4, Paul talks about how the Lord himself will be justified in your words and will prevail when you are judged. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, New English Translation. The idea being presented is a motif that appears in various places in the scriptures. It's called theodicy, and it is the question of understanding the goodness of God in the face of evil. It's the age-old question that we have been looking at in this particular exploration. In fact, the whole great controversy itself is really a theodicy. Before humans, before angels, before the whole universe, the goodness of God will be revealed despite the evil that unfolds in the world. Every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversy has now been made plain. The results of rebellion the fruits of setting aside the divine statutes have been laid open to the view of all created intelligences. The working out of Satan's rule in contrast with the government of God has been presented to the whole universe. Satan's own works have condemned him. God's wisdom, his justice, and his goodness stand fully vindicated. It is seen that all his dealings in the great controversy have been conducted with respect to the eternal good of his people and the good of all the worlds that he has created. Ellen G. White wrote those words in her book entitled The Great Controversy, pages 670 and 671. However hard it might be for us now to understand Immersed as we are in a world of sin and suffering, and if it's hard for us, imagine what Job must have thought. When it is all over, we will be able to see the goodness and justice and love 
and fairness of God in all his dealings with humanity, with Satan, and with sin. This doesn't mean that everything that happens in the world is good. Clearly it's not. It means only that God is dealing with it in the best way possible. And then, when this terrible experience with sin is over, we will be able to shout what is proclaimed in Revelation 15 and verse 3, New King James Version. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. The New King James Version. Why is it so important to be praising God even now, even amid the trials that seem so hard? Let's continue exploring. Here are a few thoughts to ponder and questions to consider. Students of the book of Job who delve into the Hebrew come across an interesting phenomenon. Job's wife's words to him are translated, curse God and die. Job chapter 2 and verse 9, the New King James Version. Job chapter 1 and verse 5 is translated, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. New King James Version. And Job chapter 1 and verse 11 is translated, But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your faith. The New King James Version. Each case, however, the word translated curse comes from a word that means bless. The word from the root BRK is used all through the Bible for bless. It's the same root used in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 22 when God blessed the creatures he had made. The same root is used in Psalms chapter 66 and verse 8. Psalms 66 and verse 8. O oh, bless our God, you peoples. New King James Version. Why, then, is the same verb, which means bless, translated as curse in these few texts? First of all, if the idea of blessed were meant in those texts in Job, the text would be nonsensical. In Job chapter 1 and verse 5, why would Job want to offer sacrifices to God in case his sons had blessed God in their hearts. The context demands a different meaning. The same with Job chapter 1 and verse 11, 
and chapter 2 and verse 5. Why would Satan think that if calamity befell Job, he would bless God? The context demands that the meaning be curse instead. Also, why would Job rebuke his wife for telling him to bless God? Job chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10. Given the context, the text makes sense only if the idea of curse is meant. Why then did not the author use one of the common words for curse? Scholars believe that it's a euphemism, because the idea of writing down a concept of cursing God was offensive to the author's religious sensibilities. We can see the same thing in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 10 and 13, where the word translated blaspheme is from BRK, bless. Listen to the verses. Verse 10. And seat two worthless and unprincipled men opposite him, and have them testify against him, saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Verse 13. Two worthless and unprincipled men came in and sat down opposite him, and they testified against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth cursed and renounced God and the king. Then they brought him outside the city and stoned him to death. So, Moses used the word bless instead of the actual word for curse, even though it's obvious that the idea of curse was intended. In times of crisis, why is it so natural for people to question the reality of God or to question what God is like? Amid the harsh reality of what it means to live in a fallen world, a world in which the great controversy is real, why must you keep the reality of the cross always before you? Though you know the background to what was going on in the story of Job, as far as we can tell, Job didn't know it. All he knew were the calamities that happened to him. He didn't know the bigger picture. What does this tell you about how, when you are experiencing trials, to remember that there's a bigger picture that you often don't see or understand? And to draw comfort and hope from the struggles. AmbassadorGroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.